So we had, uh, we've been having a lot of uh, live streamers at our Sunday and Wednesday activities. So uh, I wanted to mention that because I know a lot of people watch the video um, or listen to the podcast down later on, but want to just make sure everybody's aware that we do live stream uh, these messages on Wednesday nights and Sundays at 9 and Sundays at roughly uh, 1030. Uh, so love to have you guys join us live if you are, uh, if you are able. Uh, but tonight we're going to continue our study of eternal security. So this is part two. Uh, last week we, uh, we introduced this topic and got through uh, the, the first two of eight incontrovertible, uh, undeniable proofs uh, that once you're saved, you cannot lose your salvation. And so it's a great time of discussion uh, and I hope, again, you'll always feel free to ask questions and uh, raise your hand. Feel free to uh, make comments as well as things come to your mind. This is our interactive uh, uh, Bible study. And in an ideal world, we'd all sit around a bunch of tables, and I'd be down on the floor, and we could, could really uh, just have a conversation. But in order to live stream and, and video these, uh, it's, it looks more like a, a regular message or conference or sermon or something. But uh, don't let that stop you. And I don't think you will. Usually you guys are pretty, pretty good about, uh, about asking questions. I was talking to someone who had watched the video from last week. And, boy, they asked. Oh, no, it was from Sunday morning from the Bible study. Boy, they ask a lot of questions. I said, I know. I love it. And I really do. I learned from that. Um, so anyway, we want to just uh, review that we said there are basically three views on this doctrine. In the first place, there are those who deny it explicitly. They say, no, we don't believe in eternal security. Your salvation is something you earn, and because you earn it, you can lose it. If you do some very bad things, or you don't do enough good things, or maybe you uh, deny uh, the Lord, or any other different reasons they come up with, they say you can lose your salvation. So in that, according to that view, at one point, you could be saved, and if you died, you'd go to heaven, but maybe at a later point, if you died, you wouldn't go to heaven. So it's very questionable, and you never know for sure what your eternal destiny is, and that's the denial of eternal security. We reject that view, and we're, this whole point is to, uh, of this topic is to, to, to refute that view. But there's also more of an effective or an implicit denial of eternal security, and that is those who say, no, we believe in eternal security. Uh, we just believe that if you do anything really bad or don't do enough good things or if you deny the faith, it means you really were never saved to begin with, uh, which it ends up in the same place, does it not? It ends up in a place of lack of assurance, inability to know for sure if you're going to heaven, uh, because you can't tell the future and you don't know what you might do down the road. Uh, so... To summarize the first two views here, both of, again, both of which we reject, uh, the first view would say you must do good works to be saved. The second view would say you must do good works or you are not saved. And so either way, your works become the instrumental determinative factor about your eternal destiny. But the view that we are proposing uh, based on our understanding of Scripture is the third view, and that is the explicit defense that uh, the Bible teaches that salvation, once secured, can never be lost. By definition, it is called eternal salvation. And if it's eternal, that must mean it can never be uh, lost. And so uh, we introduced last week eight undeniable proofs of eternal security. And the first one that we looked at was logical proof. And this is where we sort of touched on the meaning of that word eternal. 
and we looked at uh, a few passages that sort of bore, bore this out, that eternal life is a present possession. You get eternal life when you believe the gospel, not when you die. You already have eternal life. When you die, uh, you are going to, if you know the Lord, you're going to spend the rest of your life in a glorified body in the presence of our Lord. Uh, the eternal life that we get as a result of faith alone in Christ alone happens immediately. Eternal life begins now. So if you're saved, you're already living your eternal life. It just so happens that the first so many years of it are in this old physical body made of uh, flesh and bone and, and on this earth uh, uh, constrained by time, space, and matter. But eternal life begins the moment you trust Christ. It is a present possession, uh, not a future possibility. It's a present reality. And that being the case, and again, we won't rehash all of this because we looked at several passages last week, but that being the case, if it could be lost, then it was never eternal to begin with. So that's the logical argument for the doctrine of eternal security. And then we secondly looked at several key, what we call proof texts or passages of Scripture that plainly teach that our salvation cannot be lost. Uh, we looked at Ephesians 1 where it says we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise the moment we believe the gospel. Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, Paul tells us. And that seal lasts until this body is redeemed in heaven. Uh, Ephesians 4.30, he's given us a seal as a guarantee. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1, another passage that talks about the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And then two very well-known uh, passages among those who are advocates of the eternal security view, uh, and I grew up learning these, are John 10.28 and Romans 8. John 10.28, Jesus says, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. Uh, no one is able to pluck you out of my hand. My Father who is greater than I, no one is able to pluck them out of his hand. Romans 8, nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in uh, Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's several passages that at plain, normal, face value reading teach uh, unambiguously the doctrine of eternal security. So any question about the logical or biblical arguments as you've had time to kind of think about them or meditate on them or anything that comes to mind as we've reviewed them before we go on to number three? Any thoughts? Yes? Uh, sometimes people will talk about the concept of suicide, and I always assure them that taking your own life, as it says in Romans 8, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, but, but uh, is there a specific text you use when addressing suicide? Yeah, all of these same texts, uh, because... Um, there's no asterisk by any of them. There's no asterisk that says, unless this happens, and then my guarantee wasn't really a guarantee. There's no fine print. Uh, I had someone ask me that question just not long ago uh, after one of my uh, messages, and uh, I understand it. Uh, the erroneous notion that if you commit suicide, you go to hell comes from not the Bible, but from Roman Catholic dogma in the concept of mortal and venial sins. And they believe that if you commit suicide, you go to hell. Uh, but that's simply not the case. Um, obviously, it is wrong to commit suicide. We hope and pray that nobody ever gets to the point of despondency such that they feel like they have to take their own life. Uh, but that is a reality. And uh, fortunately, as you uh, refer to, Romans 8 is very clear that... Uh, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? 
As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And listen to this. I am persuaded that neither death nor life. There you go. So if you kill yourself, it doesn't change anything. Angels nor principalities nor powers. You know, sometimes you'll hear people talking about, you know, selling their soul to the devil and things like that. You know, once you've trusted Christ... Nothing can undo what the Spirit of God and the triune God did instantaneously the moment you placed your faith in Him. Uh, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, notice, nor any other created thing. So you, we all fall into that category of created beings. So we cannot uh, undo or pluck ourselves out of the hand uh, of the Lord if we've truly trusted in Christ. Um, now, obviously, it's a tragedy. It's never... Uh, you know, committing suicide is just like uh, any other sin in the sense that it's it's a moral r- moral wrong. It's it's something that is contrary to God's will. He never wants that for anybody. But if you were to, uh, so, so for some reason, and again, it goes back to Roman Catholic teaching, we've classified that as the ultimate sin, right? The penultimate sin. And but if you open the door there, then what about other sins? What about murder? If you go to hell for killing yourself, do you go to hell for murdering? Someone else? If so, we got a lot of people in the Bible that would be in hell today that clearly aren't, such as David and Paul. Um, uh, what about you know other crimes and sins? So um, again, it goes back to distinguishing between our position and our practice, and we are born positionally dead in our trespasses and sins. That is, we are born separated from a holy God. Uh, Paul says in Romans 5, while we, uh, he says, uh, being uh, yet sinners, let me find the exact verse, verse, um, Romans 5 beginning in verse 6, when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we're all born dead in our trespasses and sins, separated uh, from a holy God, positionally. He goes on to say, for when we were enemies, if when we were enemies, verse 10, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So positionally, there are only two options, dead and on the road to hell, or saved, positionally righteous and on the road to heaven. But our practice is different than our position. Sometimes people that are positionally dead in their sins, unbelievers, non-Christians, do good things, don't they? I mean, Christians can do moral things. I mean, non-Christians can do moral things, right? Doesn't mean they're saved. In the same way, Christians who are positionally righteous in Christ because of their faith can do bad things. So the, the category over here on, on your left, my right, is our practice. That has nothing to do with whether you go to heaven or hell. You don't go, a person doesn't go to hell because of something they did. They go to hell because of an inner problem, their position inside. They are born dead in their trespasses and sins. They have, are positionally a child of the devil. They've never placed their faith in Christ. So... Jesus said, if you die in your, if you do not believe that I am he, that is the son of God who takes away the sin of the world, 
you will die in your sins. That's what Jesus said. So in my book, Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell, I make you know, go to great lengths to show biblically that ultimately when the one reason anybody goes to hell is because they've never believed the gospel. That is to say they're positionally separated from God. Their position is not in Christ. But if you by faith trust Christ, then you become positionally in Christ. You are born again, all the things we're going to talk about in this uh, series. And therefore, you're no matter what, you're going to heaven. But our practice is different from our position. And the, the committing of suicide goes over here in this category. It's a deed, an action, something we do. It does not necessarily correlate to who we are. We often act like, act differently than who we are. Unsaved sinners who don't know the Lord and would go to hell if they died can look and act like Christians. And Christians who know the Lord and are positionally in Christ and will go to heaven when they die can act and look like unbelievers. We have to keep separate the concept of our position, who we are, and our practice, what we do. Does that make sense? So yeah, please, uh, please kind of dispel this myth or this notion that somehow if you commit suicide, uh, you know, you're going to, uh, to hell. Uh, it's a terrible thing. It's, a, it's really a problem. It's an epidemic right now, especially among servicemen and women. The, the, the statistics are through the roof in the last two decades um, uh, of, of the servicemen and women coming home and, and committing suicide. I mean, at exponentially higher rates than the average American citizen um, and others. Uh, and, and we need to address that. And it's something that you know, the Bible speaks to, and there's hope, and there's grace, and there's comfort, and, and you can find a reason to live in God's Word. But we need to remember that even if someone uh, does something tragic like that, takes their own life, it does not have any bearing on whether they go to heaven or hell. The one and only issue as to whether your person goes to heaven or hell is have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for your sins, period. Okay, any other thoughts? Good question. So the third of these eight undeniable proofs is what I call directional proof. Directional proof. So we've had logical proof, biblical proof, and now directional proof. And so what we mean by this is never forget the direction of salvation. It's not about what we offer Him. It's about what He offers us. So if our salvation was dependent from its inception upon what we give the Lord, and, and, and you may recall in the series we just finished uh, on Wednesday nights on what the gospel is not, we talked about how the gospel is not giving something to the Lord, um, and this relates to that same subject. But if, from its inception, our salvation was about what we give to Him, then we're sort of in control. And if we take it back, then you might could argue, well, then we don't really go to heaven. But it's never dependent upon what we give the Lord to begin with. It's dependent upon what He gives us. So essentially, the directional proof argument goes like this. If the Lord's the one who instigated it, and He's the one that provides it, to say that a person for whom He has provided eternal life could end up in hell would mean to say that the Lord is not uh, trustworthy. So it's about what He does for us. So we could look at Romans 5.18. We were just in Romans. If you go on and read that phenomenal chapter, Romans 5 is so rich with 
teaching that relates to everything from the extent of the atonement to our position in Christ. And, uh, but it, it, it contra- Paul contrasts here the first Adam, which is Adam, with the second Adam, which is Christ, who is Christ. And he says, Therefore, just as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, talking about Adam, even so through one man, notice the capital M there in the New King James, one man's righteous act, that's Christ, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. So it's a free gift. And it comes directionally from God to man. We see this directional concept again and again. We see it in one of the most famous verses of all time, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He what? He gave. Who's giving? God's giving. What does that mean? He means that it's coming from him to us. And, And how do we receive it? Whoever believes in him should not perish but has everlasting life. Uh, John 1 12, as many as received him. If you're the receiver, you're on the opposite end of the direction. It's coming from somewhere, in this case God, to you. To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Or we could think of Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit. Again, notice the present tense in all of this. This is what we talked about under uh, logical proof. Didn't say, you know, made us sit someday or made us possibly sit, made us sit, present tense, togetherly in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's the reason Paul can say again and again, our citizenship is in heaven, our home is in heaven, you know, uh, we are not of this earth. And so, Because once you are positionally in Christ, by faith, that's where you live. We're just passing through this old earth. Now we have a job to do, that's another whole subject, uh, but the point is, positionally we are in Christ. And notice that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful passage. It starts with God and his grace and his mercy. He gives it to us. And that's the you know, directional uh, proof. So any questions about the concept of direction? Those who deny the doctrine of eternal security have essentially turned the direction 180 degrees around. And they're making it all about us. Um, but if it's not about us, and never has been about us, it's about the grace and mercy of our Lord, then it kind of removes that question. We cannot undo something that the Almighty Creator of the universe did. Does that make sense? Uh, any thoughts or questions on that? Yeah. Right, yeah. No. That's the I, I riches. I fought against you all this time, and now because of your exceeding grace, I'm getting to. Yeah, to that. Be, you know, I mean, you, you really think about there's going to be, I think, quite a few people that way. Oh, no question. No question there'll be people that way that, uh, that 
are, you know, perfect testimonies of the matchlessness, amazing nature of God's grace. Um, and and, it, and, it, and when you think about it, it has to be that way. Because if there were limits to God's grace, then it's not grace, right? It's a contract. If, if it's as long as you don't do A, B, or C, you're good, that's not grace. Grace by nature is undeserved favor. So therefore, the more undeserved it is from a human perspective, the more powerful grace becomes, right? It doesn't cheapen grace. It makes grace that much more powerful. In other words, who are we to say that the same grace that is good enough to cover us in our you know, fleshliness, our temperamental uh, fits of anger, our jealousy, our covetousness, our lust, or just our you know, immaturity as a Christian, the things that we do, and we all do it, who are we to say that God's grace is sufficient to cover that, but there's a certain category that if you reach that level, somehow God's grace turns off? That's not the picture of grace in God's Word. So you're right. I think, as we've talked about, as you referenced, even if, even if we were to deny the faith at some point down the road, having already become a Christian, the Bible speaks to that issue. 2 Timothy 2, 12 and 13. Even if we are faithless, God remains faithful because He cannot deny Himself. And we're going to talk about that family relationship in a moment. And so in those instances, I think people who, again, for whatever reason, could be external stresses, it could be mental illness, it could be bitterness, anger, tragedy, whatever it is that leads a believer to turn his, his or her back on God, whatever the reason, they're going to be shocked and stunned when they see the Lord in heaven and recognize just how beautiful God's God's grace is. Yeah. There's almost a little subtle amount of pride in saying I mean even though even though they're saying there's a negative aspect to it if you don't do this then you won't make it. There's a pride I think side to thinking that somehow we can add something to what God or you know like the verse says who could who can add to what God or give him counsel? Or yeah, yeah, Romans 11, yeah. So there's a sense in which in saying that we have to perform a certain way to keep him happy, that's one aspect of it. But there's another aspect, I think, of who are we to think that he needs us to do something in order that we should be acceptable to him? Yeah, I, I, would, say, I would say it even stronger. It's not just a little bit of pride. I think those who hold... That view, and I'm thinking now of the Calvinist view of the gospel and the Reformed theology view, that says you must persevere in good works until the end or you're not really saved. Uh, I think it's an incipient amount of hubris. I mean, it's, it's a terrible prideful position to be in because essentially what they're saying, as I just said a moment ago, is that my sins that they all admit they're committing every day, are somehow okay and don't negate my salvation. But boy, if you do this or this or the biggies, well, then there's no way you can possibly be saved, you know. And that's pride. I mean, that, that's, uh, again, that in no way minimizes the seriousness of the so-called big sins. I'm not suggesting those are okay or good or healthy or proper. They're terrible. Sin is awful. And, 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 and people that are wrapped up in sin of any kind ought to forsake it and repent of it and stop it. And uh, we've got a, 
a video that we sell called The Awfulness of Sin that, that talks about how devastating sin can be in the life of a believer. Uh, but one thing that sin is powerless to do in the life of a believer is to undo the promise of God who said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. But you're right, there's a, there's a, a pride there. The passage you were talking about is in Romans 11 at the end of this great section of Romans chapters 9 through 11 where he's talking about Israel and their future and their future kingdom and their future king. Uh, it's amazing how so many uh, Calvinists miss the whole point of chapters 9 through 11 and think it's all about individual election. When it's not, it's about the nation of Israel and God's future for them in the earthly literal kingdom. Uh, but he says, oh, in verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And then the verse you were thinking of, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. That's not the way it works. He gives to us, right? And I don't understand it. I don't understand how a sinner like, like Saul, who was murdering Christians, dragging them from their homes, can get to go to the same heaven that I go to. And I've never murdered anybody, but that's the beauty of grace. It's indiscriminate. And it covers all. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? So when I look at others and hastily conclude, well, they can't possibly be a Christian, or in the case of that first view on eternal security, the, the explicit denial, I say, oh, they've lost their salvation. They forfeited their salvation. I'm, I'm being prideful because, you know, I, you know uh, and by the way, there are those who, in one of those first two categories, who teach sinless perfection this side of heaven, that a person can reach sinless perfection. And as wrong as that is, and it's, it's so clear in Scripture that as long as we're bound up in this body of flesh, we're never going to be perfect in our practice. We are already perfect in our position, but we will never be perfect in our practice until this mortal puts on immortality. But it, so as wrong as that is in, in biblically, at least it's logical. Because in their mind, if, if our practice, our behavior, somehow determines our eternal destiny then the only hope anyone can have is to someday reach on this earth a level of sinless perfection. And then they can say, I'm there, I've made it, I'm in. <laughs> but it's not about that. It's about grace. It's about grace. It's about grace. And so, um, you know, and, and by the way, I encourage you to watch the video that we have for free on our website called What is Free Grace? I referenced this several weeks ago. Uh, but it's right there on the homepage at notbyworks.org. If you've watched the highlight carousel, it'll come up. Just click on it. But it's a one-hour explanation of the nature of grace being free. And uh, so, so absolutely, I, I'm a little bit more uh, blunt in my characterization of, of those who take that view. And I say there's a real pridefulness in looking at others and concluding they're not going to heaven whilst at the same time concluding I am. It's just a matter of degree they may be considered committing more serious sins, sins that are worthy of greater consequence, but sin is sin. And, uh, you know, when you think about it, the original sin was taking a bite of fruit. I mean, by comparison, there are a lot worse sins that people commit today, but it's the attitude of the heart. And my attitude in my sin today is no less grievous to the Holy Spirit 
than the attitude of someone who commits murder or is a homosexual or does drugs or commits other terrible, heinous sins. So, uh, good, good question, good comment. Any, anything else before we move on to number four? So we've had logical proof, biblical proof, now directional proof, and then I want to look at legal, uh, oops, legal proof. Legal proof. And this all comes down to the meaning of the word justification. Justification means declared righteous. It's a legal term uh, in Scripture, a technical term. It's uh, almost like an accounting term. It's, it's, it's a, official. It's not a nebulous term. It's not a subjective term. It's, you know, you were unrighteous. You've now been declared righteous. And this is what we mean when we talk about our position in Christ. So we could go all the way back to Genesis and see that from the beginning, anyone who hopes to be righteous enough to get into heaven can only achieve that state by declaration, not by their own actions. It's got to be something external that says, I hereby W justified. And that declaration is made by God, the creator of the universe. And uh, it is made in response to faith. Remember Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and was declared righteous. Declared. He was justified. In other words, our sins have been paid for. And justification, that declaration of who we are in, in Christ, occurs at the moment of faith. And the legal argument basically says... God, the judge, the ultimate judge of the universe, will never renege on his ruling. When the gavel comes down, not guilty, it's a done deal, right? You know, the, the, God doesn't suspend his gavel in midair and say, all right, let's see how you make out for the rest of your life. And as long as you, you finish strong, then it's not guilty. But man, if you don't finish strong, it's guilty. Take him away. That's not the way God operates. The... the uh, Ruling has already been made. The, the declaration has already been issued. And it is not guilty. Righteous. So we could go back to Jesus' teaching uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is, is so profound, and yet I think so many people butcher that passage and really don't understand what's happening there. But you remember the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' first really major lengthy sermon at least as recorded in scripture matthew's gospel records it early on uh, right after the wilderness uh, experiences and uh, his uh, galilean ministry there and in chapters five through seven and and the whole point of the sermon on the mount is for jesus to indict the self-righteous you know fake righteous Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and Jewish leaders, the hypocrites, for their outward righteousness and to tell them you've never gotten perfect righteousness that comes by faith. So if you remember, he systematically gets their attention like a good uh, preacher and he starts out with the Beatitudes where one after the other he basically turns the conventional thinking on its head, you know, Blessed are the persecuted, and blessed are the poor in spirit, not the mighty and the big showy ones with the fancy dress. And, and he just basically kind of gets their thinking turned upside down, and then he, he begins to explain that, um, you know, it's, 
it's not what you do that matters, it's who you are. And, you know, you may think you've never uh, committed adultery, but let me ask you, have you lusted? Well, then you're guilty. You may never have committed murder, but have you hated? Well, then you're guilty. See, it's, he's looking, getting them to look inwardly, not outwardly. And at the end of chapter 5, he sums it all up with this sort of climactic statement, Therefore, you must be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, you Pharisees, you think you're going to be first in line. You think you've dotted all your I's and crossed all your T's, but you're not really perfect. Because the perfect righteousness that God requires is God's righteousness, not man's best attempt at God's righteousness. And so no matter how righteous you might become in your practice, 99.5% righteous. Um, it's not righteous enough because God's standard is 100% perfect righteousness. And then he's going to go on to explain the only way that that can happen is by faith. And I know I've talked about this before, but it, it's always worth noting that the very first thing that Matthew records after that famous sermon of Jesus is Jesus' interaction in chapter 8 of Matthew with the centurion in which he commends this Gentile for his faith. And he says, I've not seen such great faith even in Israel. And I've always pictured him making that statement about the centurion and sort of looking over with a knowing look, like I'm talking about you guys as these scribes and Pharisees are standing in the wings, you know, with a harumph on their face, thinking, what's this guy doing? Who's this new prophet in town? But I think that's, that's the implication of what he's saying, is that this fake righteous, self-righteous, human mustered up righteous is going to not open the doors of heaven. You've got to be perfect. And that perfect righteousness is a legal declaration that comes the moment we place our faith in Christ. Let's look at some passages in Romans. Romans 4 verse 5. Notice, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. That's how it happens. So if you picture a courtroom scene, you know, the judge, the eternal creator of the universe is sitting on the throne. He alone can declare who's righteous and who's not, right? It's not up to us. Again, go back to the direction. It's not up to us. It's not something we do. And when we place our faith in him as the only one who can provide forgiveness and eternal life, if we trust him and him alone, at that moment the gavel comes down, you are declared right, you are righteous positionally, you're justified. Or Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, it's the only way you can be justified, by the way, is by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, Jeffrey. What's the gavel? What's the gavel? So a gavel uh, is a, something that a judge uses in his courtroom to call courts to order, to demand order, to kind of issue a ruling. It's a little wooden hammer, and they, they bring it down and say, case closed or case dismissed or, you know, end of the session, that kind of a thing. It's a courtroom a tool. So, yeah, good question. Anytime I use illustrations, because sometimes my illustrations don't make sense. So, you know, they make sense in my warped mind, but they don't make sense as they come out of my mouth. So, yeah. Power so It's like a hammer. Yeah. What would you say? It's a power hammer. The power hammer. Yeah. The ultimate power. The God hammer. You know. So, um, so we're justified by faith. Or we could go to Romans 10. 
we looked at this extensively uh, when we talked about how it's not necessary to confess publicly to go to heaven. Where Paul tells uh, the Jews, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Um, if you remember that whole passage there, in fact we should flip over there. Uh, Romans, pick it up at the end of chapter 9. It's all about righteousness. It's all about this justification. Uh, he says in verse uh, 30, Romans chapter 9, verse 30, remember there were no chapter divisions, so this is all part of the same context. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, practically, have somehow attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel, you know, and I'm inserting words here, but the idea is Israel, the apple of God's eye, his chosen nation, right? Who pursued the law of righteousness, later on he's going to say zealously, they have not attained to the law of righteousness? They didn't get it? You're telling me dirty, rotten, filthy Gentiles, because of their faith, can be not guilty, declared righteous. But Israel, who zealously sought to dot all their I's and cross all their T's, they're not going to get in? That's right. You know why? Because they didn't seek it by faith. Uh, and he answers that question in verse 32. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. Look down at verse 1, chapter 10. Brother, my heart's desire and prayer for God to God for, some versions say them, but it's Israel, the New King James says Israel, is that they may be saved. He wants the nation of Israel to be delivered into the kingdom. And he says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, as I mentioned. They definitely do. There are a lot of morally uh, excellent, spiritually bankrupt people out there. A lot, right? We could think of a lot of cults and false religions who teach morality. And, you know, you look at them and you say, man, they're such nice people. They're nicer than most Christians. But we're not, we don't get to heaven based on how nice we are, Right? If we did, I think we'd all be in trouble. Um, so I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, notice this, being ignorant of God's righteousness. This is what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount. You don't understand righteousness. You think you've got it all together, but you're missing something. It's not about what you do. It's about who you are. Um, for they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And how do you do that? By faith. And then this verse that we have on the screen, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness who? to who? Everyone who believes. Um, or we could go, again, this is all under the category of legal proof, to Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, this has all been Paul's teaching in Romans, but in 2 Corinthians he says, for God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that's Christ, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Yeah? Um, in that 10-4, where it says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, um, my definition for end says goal. And goal, yeah. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He is the culmination of all of it, right? Yeah. So the, she's pointing out that in, in some commentaries it says end means goal. I think it's that, but it's not only that. I think uh, Jesus himself said in that same passage in the Sermon on the Mount, 
I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Fulfill there is plurao. Uh, so Jesus, in several ways, uh, brought an end to the law. We, we know from Galatians that indeed the law by its nature had a specific timetable to it. It was never intended to be permanent. It had a starting point and an ending part, point. Galatians 3, Paul tells us in verse 24 that the law was put in place until Christ came. <laughs> Once Christ came, we don't need the law anymore because we're under the law written on our hearts. So in other words, today as believers, this is only applying to believers, um, we do what is right not because of some external code, but because of an internal moral compass, right? The Spirit of God convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Spirit of God leads and guides and directs and so forth and, and convicts. Um, so uh, you know, this is a little bit astray from what we're talking about, but it is kind of important to understand the relationship between law and grace. The law, by its nature, was always intended just to help keep order, but never intended to make people obey. So the law could not make anyone righteous. Paul says the law was powerless to make us righteous. And the illustration that you may have heard me use a time or two is, you know, to take a stop sign. You know, the law is when you see that stop sign, you stop. But we've never seen a stop sign uproot itself from the side of the road and jump out and forcibly stop your car from rolling through that intersection, right? It's a law. It's, it, it has a purpose, right? It, it serves a purpose, which is to, you know, help keep order and help keep collisions. But if someone wants to blow right through that stop sign, they can do it. The law is not going to keep them from doing it. And similarly, the law could not make us righteous, but it was put in place through Moses for a purpose. It served its purpose, and, uh, and, and, and it served multiple purposes, by the way. Another one was, as Paul says in Romans 7, to highlight the nature of our sin. Uh, we were sinners. Mankind was a sinner long before the law came into being. You know, mankind was created in the image of God 6,000 years ago. The law didn't come into being until 3,400 years ago. So we spent a long time being sinners without any help from the law. So the law doesn't make us sinners. It just simply, it made us transgressors. That's a new term because now not only are we sinning meaning missing the mark hamartia we've we are fallen short of the glory of god we've missed the standard that god creates but we've also broken a law we've broken a standard a code and that's transgression and so uh, the law highlights our sin it shows us even more desperately our need for a savior yeah Yeah, that's t classic Tony Evans. The point of the law wasn't the law. The point of the law was to point us to Jesus. He's such a has such a way of turning a phrase. And he said, if you want the law to judge you, fine. Have it your way. God will judge you by the law, but it won't be pretty. God demands absolute perfection. So if you're hoping to be justified by the law, you had better live a life without sin. And history tells us there's only been one such life. Amen. I love it, Tony spot on right there and uh, I'll repeat that because it's uh, I mean I'll paraphrase it but basically if you want to be judged by the law the Tony Evans study Bible note says knock yourself out but you better be perfect because the, the standard that the law sets is total perfection 
And there's only been one human being to ever reach that standard, and that's Jesus Christ. So that's another way that he fulfills the law. So there's a lot going on there when he talks about Christ is the end of the law. Um, it's, it's that he exemplified it perfectly by keeping it perfectly. Uh, the law pointed to him. If we go back to all the uh, Levitical uh, sacrifices and festivals and feasts, ultimately they, as we've been talking about in our study through Hebrews, were a shadow of ultimately pointing to Christ. So there's a lot of ways in which Christ fulfills or is the end of the law, and we've touched on many of them. But the point is, you know, uh, when we place our faith in Christ, we become the very righteousness of God. So that when we stand before uh, God someday at the gates of heaven, metaphorically speaking, uh, and, and it, you know, he says, why should I let you in? There's nothing that we can point to in ourselves that would open the doors of heaven. Uh, I've got a great video. I wish I'd have thought about it. I'd have brought it and shown it, but a short little clip that's a beautiful illustration uh, of this picture. But instead of saying, you know, anything within us, we point to Christ standing beside us and say, I'm with him. And we, and we get right on in. It's who you know, right? It's not what you do. It's who you are and who you know. And in Christ, so God does no, no, God no longer sees our sinfulness. He sees the blood of Christ and Christ's righteousness. It's what the Bible calls imputation. That's the theological term. So that in Adam, sin is imputed to the whole world. This is what Romans 5 teaches us. And so everyone is born a sinner. You don't become a sinner when you sin. You sin because you're a sinner, right? So again, it's not your sins that keep you out of heaven. It's your sin. It's your sin nature. It's that you're, Ephesians 2, 1, born dead in your trespasses and sins. So in Adam, sin is imputed to the whole race. Romans 5, 12 says, Wherefore by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, so all have sinned. And in Christ, righteousness is imputed to everyone who believes. So now positionally, we're no longer a sinner, but we're alive in Christ. That's what it means to be born again. And we are declared righteous. So there's a legal aspect to this that once the verdict is in, nothing can change it, right? Now that's a, a bit of a uh, weak, in a way, illustration because our uh, American criminal injustice system is so fraught with problems that you know verdicts are almost never final there's constantly appeal after appeal after appeal after appeal after appeal and especially lately with DNA technology we've we've got you know there's been hundreds of cases of people who've served decades in prison for a crime they didn't commit and were finally exonerated and then let out but the opposite is also true People that are actually guilty end up getting off, right? So it's far less final and emphatic in an American courtroom when the judge issues the verdict. Uh, but we're not talking about a human being here. We're talking about God, the creator of the universe. And there's no appeals after the verdict is in. And so there's a legal declaration. And legally, uh, we can say without a doubt that once you're saved, you're always saved. God's not going to renege on his ruling. There's no new evidence that can be dug up later, you know, kind of like uh, double jeopardy, right? 
in, in our system. If you've been exonerated and uh, acquitted of a crime, you, the DA can't come back 10 years later and say, oh, I found the smoking gun. Let's get him. Sorry. <laughs> you, you got away with it, right? But, uh, and the same thing in a matter of speaking is true theologically and spiritually. Once God has made the verdict, nothing can happen down the road, suicide, whatever it might be, that's going to somehow change his ruling. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, so Sally says, you know, she's got this picture in her mind that when we die, we stand before God and we have to answer for our life. Is that true? Great question. And I think what you're probably thinking of there is the unique, special uh, judgment called the Bema judgment, the, or the Bema, literally in Greek, judgment uh, called the judgment seat of Christ, which is only for believers, and even more, it's only for believers of this present church age, so only church age believers. And it is not, even though it's called the judgment seat, it's not a judgment in the normal sense of the word where we're being judged as to whether or not we get into heaven. It's more of an opportunity for God to commend us and reward us for our faithfulness in life. And 1 Corinthians 3 tells us at that moment that our life on earth as Christians is going to be evaluated and the things that were done with selfish motives or impure motives are going to be burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. But the things that were done from the proper counsels of the heart, if he, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, are going to pass the test like gold, silver, and precious metals, and we will be rewarded. So uh, you're right, but it needs to be nuanced a little bit. This isn't a time when we're going to, our whole life is going to be replayed on a screen in front of us, and if our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, then he says, come on in. That's not what it's about at all. And in fact, we don't really know the mechanics of it we know that it happens after the rapture we know that it has to have been completed this judgment prior to the second coming because many of the rewards that are distributed to believers of the church age at that bema are positions of authority and responsibility and blessing in the earthly kingdom so uh, and I've got a chapter uh, on this in my book, What Lies Ahead, that kind of narrows it down based on the biblical record. So sometime after the rapture and before the second coming, believers receive their rewards. We don't know if it takes the whole seven years to do it. We don't know if it's instantaneous, that the moment the rapture happens, at that moment our rewards are issued and, and declared. But the point is it's all about reward, not about punishment. There's no punishment. Jesus said, when you've placed your faith in me, you have passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. So we never have to worry or fret over this moment in eternity when, when our lives are being passed before our eyes or however you want to picture that. Because however it happens, it, the result of it is reward. And yes, you, know, you may receive more rewards than the next person who may receive more than the next person, but none of that matters because heaven, as we understand the biblical doctrine of heaven, is a place of universal bliss and utopia. There's no suffering. There's no jealousy. There's no discontentment. I'm not going to look at Jeff and say, man, 
How come he gets so much authority? I was a way better Christian than he was when I was on earth. You know, we're not going to do that because um, there's no sin in heaven. That would be sin, and there's no sinful attitudes in heaven. So uh, it's kind of hard from an earthly perspective to understand that concept of varying degrees of reward. Uh, but one of the illustrations that has helped me that I've used for many years is, you know, just the concept of... Uh, pleasure or enjoyment like if you uh you know went to uh, the movies with a friend and after the movie you're coming out and you're just you're talking about it and first thing everybody says when they walk out of a, a theater after they throw their popcorn bucket in the trash right by the door there uh, is what'd you think and the other person says i don't know what you think and then the person says oh i loved it and they said yeah i loved it too okay so they both loved it right but I can't climb inside the heart of my friend and determine just how much qualitatively they loved it. And they can't climb in my heart and say how much I really loved it. We both loved it. I may have really, really, really loved it, and they may have really, really loved it. But who knows? I mean, we don't know. There's, we both had a positive experience is the point. So the same thing is going to be true uh, in heaven. There's no punishment. There's no, you know. Now, there's a false teaching out there, uh, which... Uh, I've addressed elsewhere called the the view of outer darkness that is uh, you know really terrible teaching and it's it's caused a lot of problems in the in the church but it's it's a false teaching that says if you're a bad Christian you still get to heaven but you're going to be punished for a thousand years weeping and gnashing your teeth and so forth and that's just absurd and and it, it completely flies in the face of the whole counsel of God I mean what kind of a blessed hope would it be for us to look forward to Christ our blessed hope if the first thing he's going to do when he sees us is put us over his knee and spank us for a thousand years. I mean, that, that makes no sense. And so the Bible teaches, and I, I, we sell a book on our website called uh, Should Christians Fear Outer Darkness? It's like that thick, written by three friends and colleagues of mine. It's the definitive ruling on the matter that deals with every passage relating to this concept of outer darkness and shows biblically uh, that that's not true. Uh, but the bottom line is at the beam of judgment it's a time of reward only not punishment so any other questions about uh, this legal proof yeah so if the beam of judgment kind of um, the, not the extension but what we talked about last week with um, in Matthew 10 32 and 33 about whoever confesses me yeah Absolutely. And is that reigning determination what happens at the Yes, absolutely. So the question is, referring back to last week's study, we got uh, we took a look at Matthew 10, 32, and where Jesus says, If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. But if you deny me before men, I'll deny you. And we said that has nothing to do with heaven or hell. He's speaking to believers there, and he's speaking to the disciples as he sends them out. And he's basically promising a special reward for martyrs that if you even in the face of great persecution and even the threat of death if you still confess the Lord and say Jesus is my Lord and then you're you're killed then 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 you're going to receive special commendation in heaven for that 
Uh, if we deny the Lord, which history is full of Christians who deny the Lord, and Peter himself is the quintessential example. He didn't lose his salvation in that moment. If he'd have dropped over dead of a heart attack between the second and third denial, he'd still be in heaven. But he, he pretty emphatically denied the Lord, didn't he? Three times, and then he cursed him. But the Bible theologically tells us in 2 Timothy 2 that even if we have no faith in God, if we deny the Lord, he is faithful and cannot deny himself. We are a child of God. And even nothing we can do, this falls over in the category of actions, denying the Lord. And no action that we can do can change who we are in Christ, our position in Christ. So you're exactly right. You know, her question was then, so is this uh, moment of reward for being a faithful servant until death, uh, is that what is issued at the Bema judgment? Absolutely. All of those rewards uh, are doled out at the Bema judgment. And in the chapter in my book, What Lies Ahead, that deals with this, I list for you uh, my uh, comprehensive list, at least comprehensive as far as I found, of every kind of reward, every specific named reward that believers can earn in heaven, as well as a separate list of every specific action that we can do that is specifically rewardable, one of which is being a martyr for the Lord. That's a rewardable act. Uh, there are many others. So, But most of them deal with uh, most of the rewards deal with positions of authority or service or reward in the kingdom, uh, but there are others. Yeah. So are those rewards throughout Scripture, or are they mostly condensed into Christian No, they're throughout. Yeah. Every writer in the New... Yeah, it's back there. What lies ahead? And it's a chapter on, I think it's called the Judgment Seat of Christ, if I recall. But yes, every New Testament writer mentions rewards, and um, you know, and Jesus mentions rewards multiple times. He said, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, "Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not on earth." Well, what's he talking about? I mean, it's pretty plain, right? That if you have your earthly goods that rust can can rust and decay, and moths can get after them, and they can be stolen that's not nearly as good as the rewards that you're storing up in heaven. So again, he was trying to get these Pharisees to get their minds and their focus off of themselves and the temporal nature and think spiritually. So yeah, Jesus mentions it. Every, you know, Colossian, every, every uh, writer and almost every book. Uh, for example, look at Second John chapter, uh, this is a little known verse, uh, or I say chapter, it's, there's only one chapter. It's Second John verse 8. 2 John, verse 8. Look to yourselves that you do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about rewards, you know. Uh, I mean, we don't, we, it can't possibly be heaven because the Bible plainly teaches we don't get heaven by our works. So Scripture can't contradict Scripture. So when he says, you know, make sure you don't lose what you've worked for. That's not heaven. Uh, same thing in, uh, let's see if I can find it, in Revelation uh, chapter uh, where Jesus says, um, Behold, I am coming quickly. Chapter 22, verse 12. Revelation 22, verse 12. 
Jesus said, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Again, that's not heaven, because that would completely contradict everything that Paul says when he plainly says, works is not grace, grace is not works. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done. That's the ministry theme of our ministry, not by works for 22 years now. So when Jesus says, I'm coming quickly, my reward is with me to give to you according to his work, he's talking about rewards at the Bema. So yes, it's pervasive throughout the New Testament, but remember, it's a doctrine that only applies to the church. So we don't know uh, how or if Old Testament believers are rewarded. Um, they may be, uh, but the Bible is silent on that uh, on that subject. Yeah. I just think it's kind of interesting because sometimes when we think about, you know, being placed in some sort of managerial position in heaven as a reward, sometimes we don't realize how great that is because for me it's like, well, the vacation is what you're looking for because <laughs> managing is so hard because people aren't obedient and they're imperfect. So every time you tell them to do something, one, you might be telling them the wrong thing to do, and that's a heavy weight. Two, they may not want to do it. Three, if they try to do it, they may fail at it, and then you'll have to, you know, it's yeah. so heavy that you just want vacation. Like a lot of us, I think, sometimes think of, at least I do, sometimes think of heaven and go, oh, I just want the relief. Yeah. But the truth is, when we get there, to be, you know, in a place of honor is just going to be complete enjoyment because you'll never give a wrong command. It'll always be followed perfectly. There'll be complete harmony, so it's just going to be a privilege because there won't be the heaviness, and you'll never get tired. Right. So it won't be like, oh, I can't handle this anymore. It'll right. just... Kind of like parenting. It'll be a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. No, so he makes a great point, and we'll close with this, and then we'll pick up with number five uh, next week. But I think we've, we've, because of the fallen nature of man and 6,000 years of depravity, we have completely lost sight of the nature of work. When we think of work, it has a negative connotation, right? It's something I do to make a living. It's something that involves the sweat of my brow. If we're lucky, we might enjoy our job. Like, I feel like the luckiest guy in the world because I've spent 32 years doing what I absolutely love. And I know there are a lot of people who don't earn their living, as the Bible says from the gospel, like, like I am privileged to do, but they worked in coal mines or worked in construction, and work for them was not something they enjoyed per se, but they did it because they have a duty to provide for their families and so forth. So work has a negative connotation, but we need to understand that that's only because of sin. We need to go back to the beginning, and, and to your point, the Bible is, is telling a story that comes full circle from creation to fall to redemption to recreation, and the end is going to be like the beginning. So the picture that we see in Scripture of kingdom life and the new heavens and the new earth parallels what we see in the garden before the fall. Well, what did we see in the garden before the fall? Adam had a job long before sin ever entered the world. God said, number one, name all the animals. And number two, tend the garden and keep it. But at that time, before the fall, he loved it. It wasn't hard. It, there was no sweat of his brow. It wasn't wearisome. It was a, it was a, it was, he didn't need to do it to make a living. He had the entire garden at his disposal. But it was a part of the image of God and man and the purpose of mankind to have dominion over the world and to, to work, right? So we've got to completely rethink our concept of work. So in the kingdom, 
You're exactly right. Work is going to return to being something that is purely joy. Now, now I understand that in this present day and age, if we have a spiritual outlook and we're living for Christ and, and we're believers, that our work even now should also have that sort of blessing type attitude. And we should you know, work as unto the Lord, whether you eat, drink, do all to the glory of God. And so, yeah, I understand that from an attitude perspective, we we still have the that same obligation, but that's just it, is we, we have to be commanded in Scripture to have that attitude because naturally speaking, we think of work as a negative, right? You know, I don't, I don't think, oh boy, I get to mow the lawn today, right? I mow the lawn, and, and some people enjoy it. I used to enjoy it when we lived out on property, and I had a John Deere, and I'm riding around, and it was fun, but it still wasn't something that, you know, you know, if I, you know, given the choice of going on vacation with my family or mowing the pasture, I'm pretty sure I know which one I would choose, right? So you can enjoy work, uh, and should, but uh, but in the kingdom someday, work is going to take on a whole new meaning the way it did before the fall. You know? So good point. Well, awesome. Well, let's, uh, let's wrap up there. So we've gotten through four of the eight. So it looks like we're going to do two a week, at least if the pattern holds. But that's great. I love that. And uh, next week, we're going to look at theological proof, just to give you a heads up. So we've had uh, logical proof, biblical proof, directional proof. And then now legal proof. And then we'll pick up next week with uh, theological proof. All right. Thank you, guys.